what I had realized was, is if that had been me that day, if I had gotten killed that day, what would my legacy have been? And I said, here's what it would have been. Poor kid from Nashville, Tennessee, makes enough money to retire at age 27, and nobody cares. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know when investing, you've got to learn about risk. And to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Aaron Walker. Aaron, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to go, Andrew. <laughs> Let's All right. go, buddy. <laughs> Let's do it. Aaron has founded more than a dozen companies over the past 41 years. He's attributed much of his success to having surrounded himself with his mastermind counterparts. Aaron spent a decade meeting weekly with Dave Ramsey, Dan Miller, Ken Abraham, and five other amazing entrepreneurs. Aaron is the founder of Iron Sharpens Iron Mastermind that now hosts 15 groups with national and international members. Aaron is the author of View from the Top, a must-read to fully understand how to live a life of success and significance. Also, the founder of the Mastermind Playbook, an incredible resource for starting, running, and scaling masterminds. Aaron lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Robin, of 40 years, and he has two incredible daughters and five beautiful grandchildren. And ladies and gentlemen, I first heard him in 2014 on Entrepreneur on Fire podcast, and it's such an honor to have you on the show. Aaron, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to go, Andrew. Thanks for having me, buddy. That's great. Well, let's take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. You know, I think you covered a lot of it. I've been an entrepreneur now for 41 years, as you've said. This is our 14th business. I can't even believe it. Some days I look up and I think I'm still 18 in that first shop. And I look back and I think, man, what an amazing journey it's been. I don't know if I'd change much. I've been married now for 40 years this June to my childhood sweetheart. And as you've pointed out, we've got two beautiful daughters. One is my COO of our company. And then I have five grandchildren. I'm just having a blast helping ordinary men become extraordinary in all they do each and every day. That's fantastic. And I, I remember we were talking earlier and I, I just remembered there was things that touched me in, your, in the podcast interview. And I've listened to every one of John Lee Dumas's podcast interviews. And there's a very small number that I can really remember how I felt about that. And it was the idea of helping men in this case, but let's just say also helping people move from success to significance. And I thought that that was something that you told a story about how you heard somebody say that and you thought, that's what I'm all about. And you've built a whole life around that from what I can see. So hats off to you. Thank you. You know, I first heard that from Bob Buford. He wrote a book called Halftime. And back in the 90s, Dave Ramsey called me one day and he said, hey, Big A, he said, do you want to go to Amelia Island in Florida and hear Bob Buford speak with Sharon and I? So I said, hey, I'm in. So I grabbed Robin and we ran down to Amelia Island and we spent the week with them down there hearing Bob Buford. And when he was standing up doing his presentation that day, talking about how we live our life to make so much money and gain so many tangible possessions. And then he said, one day we wake up and we find out that it's not really what we thought it was going to be. And then our focus turns towards significance. 
And I really resonated with that comment. And so as I tell a little bit more of my story in a few minutes and how that has impacted my life, that's been one of the most profound comments I think I've ever heard. Mm, Yep. It's the key thing to life. I think as we get older and we have experienced different things, it is those things that we pick up throughout our lives that, you know, start to really shape the way that we interact with people. And I recently picked up a book called The Road Less Traveled. And I remember reading this book when I was 18. And I thought, I went, I read it the other couple, like a year ago, and it was all dog-eared and I had marks on it. And I thought to myself, this book really resonates with me. You know, it's like something I really live. And then I realized, yeah, that's because you read it and you took it in to your life right. back then. Right. But I hadn't visited the words of it and the, the meaning of it in that direct way. And when I went back, I realized that, yeah, all of the people that we met, all of the books that we read, these things shape our lives. And some of them shape them even more directly than others. So absolutely. Yep. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about your circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Andrew, I'm going to give a little twist to this and I hope it's okay for your audience, but I could stand here and tell you many financial investments that we've made that have not panned out like we'd hoped. Like you said, nobody goes into any investment thinking this is going to be my worst investment ever. But what happened to me August the 1st, 2001, forever impacted my life in a very meaningful way. And let me give you a little bit of a backdrop, if I could, see a little bit of context so you'll understand why this so impacted me. I started out very, very poor, lived in a family of six here in Nashville, Tennessee. My dad was a general contractor and never made over about $15,000 a year in his life. And we grew up in about a 600 square foot house and I wanted better than that for myself. And so I went to school and talked to the guidance counselor and figured out a way to get out of school a couple of years early. I went to night school and summer school for about 18 months and I was able to get out of school the beginning of my junior year in high school. So I didn't have to go those final two years. And so I worked every single day. So when I turned 18 years old, I met a couple of gentlemen here in Nashville that owned the 21st largest insurance agency in the country at the time. And I approached them one day and I said, hey, why don't we take your money and my experience and open up our own store? And they started laughing and they said, how old are you? I said, I'm 18. And they said, we've never had anybody 18 years old approach us. And so I went back, put together a little bit of a plan the best I could. And I approached them again. And they said, you know, we're going to do this investment with you. We've checked on you, found out you're a pretty cool kid. And we're going to do this. And so to make a long story short, we went to the bank and signed a note. And I said, I thought you had the money. And they said, we do have the money, but we want your name on the line. We want you to have skin in the game. So I signed a $150,000 loan. This is in the 70s, Andrew. That was a lot of money in the 70s to an 18-year-old. And so I went out and I opened up a retail outlet and God just blessed it immeasurably. I can't even begin to tell you. I got married a year after that and I paid a 10-year loan off in 36 months. So here I am now, 21 years old. I have a paid-for retail establishment. I own a third interest in that. And I thought, I can do it again. And I did, Andrew. And then I said, I can do it again and again. And I kept, kept doing it. Now I'm 27 years old. I've got four stores here in Nashville, Tennessee. 
and a company called Cash America. They're in Fort Worth, Texas. They're a Fortune 500 company. Approached me, made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I was finished at age 27. And I thought, man, what a great story. I said, poor kid from Nashville, Tennessee, makes enough money to retire by the age of 27. It couldn't get any better than that. Well, that was true, Andrew, for about 18 months. Mm. And then my wife was waking me up in the middle of the day and she said, man, you've gained 50 pounds. You don't do anything all day long. I didn't sign up for this. You've got to get a job. So I go back by the company I started with when I was 13 years old. And we built that company four times the size it was. It was unbelievable, my circumstance and situation. By this time, I'm 40 years old. I have two daughters and my life is utopia, literally utopia. I'm working three days a week. My partner's working three days a week. We have a vacation home, big house on the hill. We got all the stuff and it was so amazing until August 1st, 2001. I was headed to the office. It was 7.30 in the morning and a pedestrian was crossing the street to catch a local bus and he didn't look my way. And that day, Andrew, I ran over and killed a pedestrian. I can't even begin to tell you what was going through my mind. I pulled over to the side of the road and I was shaking so hard. I couldn't dial 911 on my cell phone. I literally could not dial the number. Finally got my composure enough. I dialed 911 and I hadn't turned around yet. I hadn't looked behind me. Finally got out of the car and I turned around and looked and cars were stopping everywhere. It was a four lane major highway and people were jumping out of their cars everywhere. And I finally got the courage to walk over and there was a gentleman, elderly gentleman, laying face down in the street, motionless. The ambulance got there, the paramedics, the fire trucks, everyone got there and they put him on the gurney. And I said, is he gonna be okay? And they said, he's got severe head trauma. So they asked me to go sit in the back of the police car and I did and witnesses came over and testified that I didn't do anything wrong. They said, he ran right out in front of you. There was nothing you could have done. So I went on to the office and I couldn't work. I just couldn't get my composure. So I went home, my wife and daughters were in Florida with our church and I called them, told them what had happened. Next day they came home and you can only imagine what transpired over the next 48 hours. I received a phone call on Saturday morning about nine o'clock and they said, Mr. Walker, this is Vanderbilt Hospital. And I was told that you were involved in a pedestrian accident with Enrique. I said, that's correct. And she said, I'm sorry to tell you, he didn't make it. Mm. Well, the pressure and the stress can only try to describe it, but it would be impossible. And so, a couple of weeks later, I went to the office and I had one of the first anxiety experiences I'd ever have. And I thought, why is this happening to me? I mean, I, you know, my life couldn't have been any better. Beautiful wife and great kids and beautiful business. And so I just don't understand it. I just couldn't make sense of it. So I went to my business partner and I said, listen, I've been chasing money since I was 13 years old. And I'm 41 now at this point. And I said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to sell the business. And I did. I sold my partner, my interest in the business, and I financed it for him over the next 10 years. He wasn't prepared to buy me out, so I financed the company for him. And I took five years off. I didn't do anything for five years. 
we traveled abroad and I was grateful that I had a little bit of resources that allowed me to take some time off. I saw counselors. I had a lot of friends that circled around me and really embraced me and helped me. I called the family and I was cautioned by our legal counsel not to call, but I called, I called the family. I said, I, there's no way I can't contact these people and gave my condolences and apologized. And they said, Mr. Walker, we know that it wasn't your fault. Our dad had been warned many times not to go out alone and he did. And it just wasn't good timing for him. And so I took five years off and through that, what I had come to realize, I told a long story to get to this point. What I had realized was, is if that had been me that day, if I had gotten killed that day, what would my legacy had been? And I said, here's what it would have been. Poor kid from Nashville, Tennessee, makes enough money to retire at age 27 and nobody cares. And that was very convicting. And I started thinking through that and I said, that's not what I want my legacy to be. What I want my legacy to be is that Andrew's life is better as a result of having known me. That's what I want my legacy to be. And so I really changed my focus. I started thinking more looking outward and not inward. And I started really helping other people accomplish their goals and dreams. And I quit being so self-centered and selfish and thinking that, you know, the little bit of net worth that we had at that time, nobody cared but my family. It didn't make any difference. It didn't impact anybody. It didn't transform anybody's lives. As a result of experiencing that, I really learned the brevity of life. I really learned how fragile life is. And in my book that I wrote a couple of years ago called View from the Top, the chapter that I tell about this accident, I titled it Blindsided because that's exactly what happened. Here's what my question is to you today. What could you be blindsided by? And if it were to come at an inopportune time, which most things that way do, what would your legacy be? And so I really have devoted the past 18 years of my life, Andrew, looking outward, trying to help other people accomplish the things that they want. And I promise you, our legacy is going to be entirely different now as a result of it. Now we still teach, have a great amount of success, but the significance piece is what I was missing. I had no significance in the lives of other persons. Now, I could have told you many stories financially, but this one had more of an impact on my life personally and professionally than any other financial story I could have shared. Mm. Well, thank you for taking the, the risk and sharing all that. And it really, you know, blindsided all the way around. And uh, it's just, I'm going to basically talk about some of the things that I took away from the story. And I would say, you know, the first thing is that tragedy strikes. You can't avoid it. It will strike in some way or another. And I think that, you know, you talked about your friends and family gathering around. And I think one of the things I've learned over the years is that it's the relationships that we build that is what can carry us through our darkest times. And I've faced a few of those in my life. And I have a couple of friends and my family that have stood by me during that time. And if I hadn't had that support, there's no way I could have gotten through it, or at least I wouldn't have gotten through it and been a better man 
from it. And so, you know, I think about the relationships that we build and the importance of those, which we see in hindsight. I mean, I, when I was young and I was building friendships, I didn't understand how valuable these, the trust in those friendships would become. And as I always say, there is no shortcut to trust. It takes time. The second thing that, you know, I, you got me just thinking about is that concept of legacy. And I think that we're all so busy and, you know, you had an event that snapped you out of that, but we're all so busy working that we also sometimes forget what is our legacy. And I have something that I repeat to myself, a mantra that I've created that I repeat every morning. And it's one of the things is that every day I help one person step towards achieving their goals. And it's my way of trying to encourage myself to step out of myself and help others because the last thing that I would say that, you know, I take away from it is that, so what I like to ask is, you know, what am I doing? And for the audience, what are you doing for somebody, whether that's Enrique's family, whether that's Aaron, whether that's the people around you, you know, what are you doing to help, help them through their toughest times? And what you contribute with just that phone call, with just that message, just that little bit, even my, my mother at her age sends a little note or a little mm. gift. Mm. And those things that she does touches people's lives. So how are you contributing to people's lives so that when they go through their tragedy, they don't have to go through it alone? And that, that is kind of my biggest takeaways. Is there anything that you would add to that? You know, the relationship aspect, people ask me all the time, what is the number one way to be successful in life, you know, personally and professionally? And I said, if I could do it over again, I would start even earlier than I did building relationships intentionally. And see, it's something that today's society, we hide behind the screens. You know, the human connection is lost. And I think that if we can really focus on the human connection side, we spend an inordinate amount of time doing interviews, writing emails. We do video endorsements. I'll give you a couple of little practical things, kind of walkaways from this that people can do. They say, like, I don't even know what to do. Well, first of all is because we're text so much, every single day I'm constantly texting people saying, Andrew, thank you for what you've meant in my life. Thank you for this interview. I certainly appreciate all you've done for me. I couldn't do what I do without you. Just a simple act of gratitude. Seth Bueckley, a friend of mine, wrote a book called Ambition. And in that book, he talks about that our success is because of our gratitude. And when we have these relationships, very intentional, each and every day, it gets us out of our own head. We focus outward instead of inward. We're givers and we're not takers. And I want to encourage people to do that. I'll send videos, two or three, four, sometimes a dozen a day. I stood at my computer day before yesterday and I sent 35 Loom videos, thanking people, encouraging people. No one spends the time hardly to do a video, but quite honestly, it's a little hack. It's easier than writing an email, right? You do use Loom or Zoom or one of those platforms or your cell phone. Just grab your iPhone and do a little short 30 second. Hey, this is Big A. I want to thank you today for what you've done for me. Andrew, I want to tell a couple of quick stories related to this and the impact that it made. There's a young man named Connor that works at our local bank. And Connor's been there about six months. 
And several weeks ago, I went into the bank and I needed to open up five accounts. And I knew that was going to take some time. So I locked off my calendar, went up to the bank. I sat down at the counter and Connor said, Mr. Walker, he said, just give me this much information. And I gave it to him. He said, I'll tell you what, when I get all this completed, I'll call you back and you can come down, sign your name. You'll be through. And I said, what? He said, I'm not going to make you wait because this is going to take a long time, but I'm going to do it for you and I'm going to get it ready. His customer service skills were unbelievable. So I came back to the office. I wanted to hug him. I mean, he was so nice. So I came back to the office. I cut on my camera and I said, hey, I'm Aaron Walker, president and founder of View from the Top. I'm a premier life and business coach and I help ordinary men become extraordinary every day. And I said, the reason I'm doing this video, I want to thank Connor for his unbelievable customer service. If you had more people in your bank doing customer service like this, I promise you it would enhance your business and grow your business. And I hit in 30 second little video. I sent it to the bank manager. The bank manager sent it to the regional director. The regional director sent it to the president of the bank, which called me and thanked me for that video, asked my permission to use it in their training, which their marketing director called me and asked me if I would do a testimonial for the bank on their website and in their marketing efforts. Now, none of that was motivated by me getting anything out of it. But as a result of me doing the right thing, we've gotten, I can't tell you how much exposure as a result. Now, that wasn't my motivation, and that's not my point. Mm. My point is, is that when we do kind things, when we reach out and we encourage other persons, that natural reciprocity comes back 10x. Here's the thing, with our business today, because we look outward, we're much more successful financially and significantly than we've ever been. Mm. And I just want to say it has to be intentional. I love the building relationships intentionally. I mean, that is critical. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in technology and all that. And I also, you know, the other thing that is really interesting these days is how management of companies has shifted away from judgment to metrics. Yes. And how management has now, you have a whole group of people who have been trained that management is about KPIs. And you know, if you could just get all the numbers for everybody, and have each person reviewed every quarter, every month on the numbers and those numbers feed up to those numbers and those numbers, but they're missing one thing and that is we're human. And you know, it is that guy, that, you know, young guy, the bank, you know, employee, he didn't do that to hit a KPI. And I think it's very important lesson that when you're intentional about relationships, you also realize that people are intrinsically motivated. And many times when we try to put an extrinsic, you know, measure or guide on them, it's like you ruin the whole joy of work. Right. People are missing out on that human connection. We've got a live event scheduled in three days here in Nashville, 125 men coming from eight different countries. And we're going to talk about the human connection. That is the whole sole purpose for them coming to Nashville for three days. And that's what we're going to talk about is how important the human connection is. Mm. And before I get to the last question, I want to ask you about the mastermind, because as you said, your mastermind originally was talking and meeting weekly 
with this group of guys that you met with. And now, of course, some of your masterminds and many other masterminds, they can't meet together. They do it electronically and sometimes they are able to meet together. How do you manage the difference between a face-to-face -face type of meeting and a, you know, keeping in touch through online? Is it, you know, what, what's your experience about that? Yeah, great question. And when Dave Ramsey invited me to join his mastermind back decades ago now, I didn't even know what a mastermind was. He came up to me and he said, hey, Big A, I want you to join my mastermind. And I went, Dave, I don't even know what a mastermind is. And he started laughing. He said, just come to my office Wednesday morning, 7.30. He said, I'll introduce you to the guys that I've invited. And there were 10 guys. And we ended up sharing and doing life for over a decade together. And it transformed my life as a result of that. Well, what I have found out, though, is because of technology, we now have these video conferences this morning, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. You're in Bangkok, and we're doing this amazing interview. We would have never known each other ever had we not had this platform that we could have gotten together on called Zoom that we're using. And so now we're able to interact. I feel like I know you. We had pre-interview chat. I feel like that I could call you at any time now, yeah. right, because we're building a relationship. And so that's what it does in the mastermind group. Now you don't have to count on the geographic area to get the mentors and the people that you need. Geographically, there are no boundaries anymore. And now I can have guys, and we have eight different countries represented in our groups today. And we have one guy on the call. He's from Australia, and it's a day ahead of us on the same call. So we represent two days at one time on the same call. Here's what I have found out. The guys will be more authentic, transparent, and vulnerable faster. And let me tell you what we've discovered as a result of that. Andrew, if you and I lived in the same city and our wives were girlfriends, and I had an issue that was sensitive in nature, I might be a little bit timid to discuss that with you in fear of you would go home and share it with your wife, and then our wives would be playing tennis together tomorrow, and the cat might get let out of the bag, right? So we keep people at arm's length because we're dealing with our banker and our lawyer and the people at our church and in the civic realms that we run in. But when you have somebody in Stephenville, Texas, and somebody in Nashville, Tennessee, and somebody in Bangkok, Thailand, that are sharing intimately, I don't have those fears. And so I'm able to go, Andrew, quite honestly, business is not what I'd hoped. And I wish that I could make it change. Could you give me some advice? Or I'm struggling in my marriage. Or I've got this vice and I can't let go of it. And I need to be held accountable. Would you mind being my accountability partner for mm. a period of time? See, it allows people to do that. The other marvelous thing is I live in Hendersonville. Dave lives in Franklin. It's 45 minutes from my house. So I've got an hour travel time, hour and a half meeting, 30 minutes to talk after the meeting, and an hour back. So I've used up three and a half, four hours out of my Wednesday. With the video conferences and the convenience of your home, convenience of my office, I can cut it on. We're on for an hour. I cut it off. I go back to work. So the time that it saves you is unbelievable. Plus, we can gather so many mentors, industry consultants, thought leaders from all over the world and put them together in a video conference. And it's almost as good as being around a table in person. That's great. I mean, I would have never have really thought about that, but the aspect that, you know, the key to a mastermind is sincerity and, you know, trust. And that thing of being a little bit farther away actually can help with that. So 
Now, before I ask you this next question, I'm going to take you back to a moment in time, and that is September 15th, 1982. And I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was a 17-year-old guy, just turned 17. I was on my knees, sobbing, in a bathroom, in a hospital, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, far away from my family, in Ohio, near Cleveland. I had arrived at that place by having a one-way ticket from my parents on a bus from Akron, Ohio, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And my parents said, this is your last chance to get clean and sober. And I was a wreck. I had already tried to kill myself a few times over the years before my life had gone down the tubes. I was actually in juvenile jail when I was 14. I had been violent, you know, and fought with my dad and fought with my mom. I had stolen from my family. I had broken all the trusts. I had already been through one rehabilitation center and I got out of that place. And four days later, I was using drugs and all of that. And my life, you know, continued to spiral out. But at that moment, I had been told when I went into this hospital that I would be in a evaluation unit and that they would evaluate me. And if I made it through that evaluation unit, I would be allowed into the treatment center. My parents told me, you have seven days, and if you do not make it through that valuation, you can just walk out of that hospital and enjoy your freedom. Because we're not paying for you to come back, and you can live your life however you want. My parents had been through a lot, and they had learned about tough love. My mom, in particular, you know, is someone that really stood up for that. My dad, I think my dad would have had, had a harder time being so tough, but she knew, she knew that pushing me to that limit that I could do the right thing. The reason why I was on my knees sobbing in the bathroom in my room was because the people who were running the, the place, I had been a model citizen. I knew all the lingo. I knew everything. And at that moment, moments before that, they had told me, you're not going to be moved into the drug rehab meaning tomorrow you can pack your bags and walk out on the streets of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and, you know, good luck. Mm. And it was at that moment, that moment was my moment of surrender. And I surrendered, you know, at that moment to God, to my higher power. You know, most importantly, I surrendered to the concept that I couldn't do it. Everything I did you know, got me to that point. As we say, you know, sometimes my surrender was I'm not God at the time. I surrendered at that moment and I gave up. I gave up fighting. I gave up trying to run it, you know, and I just gave up. And I truthfully can't remember exactly what happened, but on the next day at the last minute, they accepted me into that treatment center. Now, whether those Guys were, you know, were doing that purposefully or not. I have no idea. But all I know is that more than three decades later, I can say 37 years later that that was my transformative day. And since that day, I've never taken any alcohol or drugs. Awesome. And most people just know that I don't drink or I don't 
do drugs, but it was that moment. And the reason why I tell that story, first of all, because I'm appreciate you sharing your story, but also it's a preface for the next question, which is based upon what you've learned from your story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? You know, I think it's really important that we prioritize our priorities. A lot of people try to live a balanced life, which is really a myth. Really what we should do is be very out of balance in the right places. And so I would just suggest that you really put your priorities in order and that you focus on the things that are meaningful, that are lasting, that have a purpose, and you spend an inordinate amount of time doing that and really keep in the forefront of your thoughts how we're not promised tomorrow. We have all these plans, you know, and we're not promised tomorrow. And I would encourage you to live today like there is no tomorrow in a good way. And I would really surround myself with honorable, trustworthy people. Jim Rohn says we are the average of those five people. So it's really important who you spend your time with. And so I've really taken that to heart. We're very selective on the people that we spend time with because our time is very important. And so that's the encouragement I would give your listeners today. Fantastic. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, we've got a product, you mentioned it earlier in the bio, called the Mastermind Playbook. And you can find out more about that at themastermindplaybook.com. And what it is, is a very informative, very detailed framework that teaches you how to start, grow, and scale masterminds. And we've been very, very successful at doing this. And so we leave no stone unturned. We give you everything you need to know whether you're a novice or you're very experienced, there's so much content. There's 30 professional videos. There's over 90 worksheets, templates, and tools that work you through every aspect there is. And what's so cool about that, if people are looking for a way, either as their primary income or secondary income, for a very minimal investment, you can have a six-figure business with two mastermind groups charging a very minimal fee. And so it's a very, very scalable product that we've designed. And I would just encourage people to take a look at that. And our goal for that is to get it in as many hands as possible so that we can continue spreading the message of how to live a successful and significant life. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And I think that as the world becomes more technology driven, the human connection that we get through relationships and masterminds are going to become more valuable. So what a goal and what an exciting opportunity. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Aaron, I want to thank you again for coming on the show I know it's painful talking about our losers and our bad situations, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for taking your most painful, difficult moment and turning it into your best teaching moment. Do you have any final words for the audience? Andrew, I brought a little gift. If it's okay, if I give a gift away to your listeners. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. If you'll go to viewfromthetop.com forward slash 
my worst investment ever. There are two documents that I wrote years ago. They've been downloaded tens of thousands of times. It's a personal assessment to where you really look deep into yourself and make good decisions. And another document called, What Do I Want? Most people in life today just want bigger, better, or shinier, or faster. But this helps you to really think through with clarity how you can live a very productive life and how you can keep in to the focus that we should, how to have great levels of success and significance simultaneously. So go to viewfromthetop.com forward slash my worst investment ever and download those for free. Well, thank you very much. And to the audience, take advantage of this opportunity. If you can't find it, just go to the show notes and I'll put a link in it there. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.